I love jazz music. And if there's one type of music that goes particularly well with complexity science, it's free jazz. The sort of jazz you get when you put a group of musicians together, you don't give them any written music, you don't give them a conductor, and yet despite that, they produce incredible music. How do they do that? And how does this group of musicians play so tightly together despite dramatic changes in their music? Well, in this episode, we're joined again by Tyler Margettis, Assistant Professor of Cognitive and Information Sciences at the University of California, Merced. Now, Tyler is going to return to the concept of tipping points, but in this case, he's going to look at tipping points in jazz music. And to understand how they occur, he's going to go to one of the most unlikely of places for help. He's going to go to the study of ecologies. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Tyler, welcome back on the show. Thanks for having me again, Sean. Again, going to be talking about tipping points. But it's going to be talking about tipping points through one of my favorite subjects. And it may seem a little bit odd if you're listening to this, but we're going to talk about complexity and jazz. And there's a wonderful quote from Neil Johnson in his Simply Complexity book. And he says, of all the different styles of music, I would argue that modern jazz is the closest through complex system and hence closest to the musical equivalent of complexity. Tyler, what does he mean by that? It's a lovely quote. I mean, there's so much promise uh, in there. Yeah, let's try to unpack it. I mean, complex systems have a number of features in common. One is that you often have lots of parts working together, and somehow the whole, the collective, is doing something that you'd predict from just looking at what the individual parts are doing. And I think that is really illustrated perfectly in jazz, right? Where you have all these individual players, different instruments coming together, perhaps with a plan for what they're going to play, perhaps with no plan at all. And you combine them together and you get, well, I was going to say magic, but it's not magic, right? But sometimes it feels like magic, right? If you're at a live improvised jazz performance, you get these beautiful sounds that completely unexpected. In a way, that's, you know, to my mind, a prototypical example of emergence, this incredible capacity for complex systems to do things at the level of the system that you would never expect if you just break it apart into the individual components. And the other cool thing about jazz that I think makes it so, uh, you know, paradigmatic of complex systems research is this wonderful tension between stability and transformation. So in an improvised jazz performance, in some cases, completely improvised, no score at all, you'll have long periods of stasis, of stability, of a similar sound being explored in the same way that you have, you know, economies that are just sort of chugging along, nothing's changing, or a person's religious convictions can be highly stable. And then in the last episode, you get these 
tipping points, right? All of a sudden you flip over from a bull market to a complete economic collapse or from one devout faith to another one or in jazz from one sound that already feels just magical. And you see in real time this reorganization of how the players are relating to each other and they start playing something new. And so that capacity for a complex system, on the one hand, to be beautifully stable and resilient, and on the other hand, to radically transform itself almost on a dime. I think that's what makes jazz such a great example of a lot of these wonderful themes that we see in complex systems research. With no central controller as well, isn't that right? Yeah. And so, yeah, so it's a wonderful example of a decentralized system. I mean, so much of uh, classic control theory tried to understand how really, I'm not going to say complex systems, but really messy systems or really complicated systems can be controlled by having a really, really smart, often overly complicated, centralized controller. This is how a lot of classic artificial intelligence worked. You had a centralized rule-based system that was sort of sending up controls to the arms of the robot, do this, do that. This is how some people might have thought historically about ecosystems, right? Those sort of, you know, the Wizard of Oz at the center pulling all the strings. And you do see this a bit in something like classical music, or at least that's the image that's often portrayed when you see classical Western music, symphonic music performed, where you have this conductor at the front and also the score that's in front of all the musicians. So this highly centralized control that's responsible for a lot of the structure that we see in jazz, especially in fully improvised jazz, where there's no written score at all, there's none of that. You have two or three or five or eight or however many fantastic musicians thrown together, each with their own ideas and desires and plans and aesthetic sensibilities. And somehow out of that collective distributed mess, you get some beautiful unified performance and I think that's the closest we can get on a human level to the incredible decentralized control that you see in an ecosystem or in brains, right, where you have 10 billion neurons all interacting in their own way, sort of doing their own thing, coupled to each other, but each living their own little neuron lives. And somehow that produces the fantastic flights of consciousness that we have I don't think there's any way that my individual brain can understand a brain. It's just too complicated. But I can look at jazz musicians and hopefully make some progress to understanding how decentralized control can give rise to what looks like this minutely controlled system. We're going to tackle this in a few different ways. We're going to talk about some of the work you've done personally uh, with jazz music and complexity. We're going to talk about that through an ecosystem. But before we do, we're going to let you, the listener, listen to a couple of pieces of music. So what are we, we've got two pieces of music. We put the links in the show notes to Spotify. What are they, Tyler? I have two examples of how a musical performance can really quickly transition from one style or one sound to something different. And so the, the first is a classical favorite so this is Handel Zadok the Priest. So if you click through to the track, the recording that we link to, I say listen from the start, but begin to listen especially carefully around a minute and 10 seconds in, a minute and 15 seconds, and then right at a minute and 22 seconds, that's when you'll hear 
a really surprising transition from this beautiful instrumental performance to the sudden influx of choral voices. And, uh, you know, every time I hear it, I get shivers. So surprising and beautiful, right? You get this critical transition from one style of sound to another. So that's the first track. The second track does something really similar. So it uh, happens maybe between the first 10 and 30 seconds. You get this transition from one sound to another. And then again, towards the end, right around the two minutes and 30 second mark, you go from you know, one kind of almost drone-like sound to all of a sudden this you know very chipper up-tempo sound. And the shocking thing from my perspective, because I'm not a jazz musician, so this just seems like magic to me. The shocking thing is that unlike Handel's piece, where that's completely scored out ahead of time, right? You have this notated score that all the musicians and the members of the chorus have that tell them exactly when they're supposed to jump in. In the second piece, that's improvised, right? Those transitions happen organically out of all the little accidents of people interacting with each other. So you have this self-organization of that ensemble, the really wonderful Alex Levine Quartet, where without extensive advanced planning, you get the appearance of incredible organization, structure, and control. So yeah, take a listen to those two and just think about how in both cases you get this wonderful transition from one thing to another very, very suddenly, but with really, really different kinds of control, really, really different kinds of planning and stability in both cases. So hopefully you've gone and had a listen to those two pieces of music to get the best out of this episode. We're going to talk about the second one, particularly the jazz and how they did that transition, because that's the classic tipping point, like we talked about at the last episode where you joined us. You actually went in your work to, of all places, ecosystems, because obviously there's a so obvious that ecosystems and jazz are connected. Can you talk through why you did that and the research you did on, on the jazz music? And then we'll jump into you know some of the, the discussion and conclusions you got from that research towards the end. Yeah, I mean, this is part of, I think, the power of a complex systems perspective, because, you know, as you're suggesting, ecosystems, a wild jungle or a lake, look on the surface really, really different from a bunch of Brooklyn jazz musicians in a smoky jazz club basement. There's lots of superficial differences there. But as a complex system scientist, the approach I take is to think, what are examples in other systems that show similar dynamics, that show similar patterns, and then to think, okay, well, maybe there's something common across these systems in the way that they relate to each other and the way they're organized. And so this is a real departure from the classic way of organizing science, right? Where you have biology and sociology and physics and psychology, where they're defined by the actual sort of, you know, details of the system. Psychologists study humans and how they think. Ecologists study animals, their environments, and how they relate to each other. Complex system says, okay, that's been a really productive way to do science up till now. But what if instead of focusing on a specific system, we instead try to think, okay, what are shared principles that work across systems? So that was, that's the sort of the challenge of complexity science is to find shared commonalities across systems that you would never think to study together. So from that perspective, you know, when I'm hanging out with my complex systems buddies, 
studying jazz as an ecosystem, they're like, oh, so obvious. Why didn't you do something exciting? And then when I talk to my more traditional psychological colleagues or my more traditional colleagues in cognitive science, or for instance, when I'm talking to my mother and I say, oh, I decided to study jazz as an ecosystem. It's, you know, wide-eyed confusion. Are you sure you're a professor? Do you have a degree? You know, what's happening? So yeah, truly very, very different responses depending on the audience. For me, the thing that had me really mystified by this free jazz that's, you know, often defined by radical improvisation, very few rules, very little constraint on the musical side. The thing that was mystifying for me is how you could get from that lack of constraint and the lack of a, you know, centralized controller, a leader to what looked like really, really structured behavior at the level of the entire system. And so I thought, you know, what are other systems that have some of the messiness, the fleshiness of jazz that exhibit similar patterns of stability and then critical transitions or tipping points into a new state or a new regime? And I thought, ecosystems. There's a long history in ecology of studying those kinds of critical transitions, those kinds of tipping points from one state of the ecosystem to another, right? So from a savanna or forest to a desert or from a clear lake ecosystem to a really opaque lake that's full of algae. So they're a science that actually has really advanced tools for trying to understand, quantify, and even predict when those critical transitions are going to happen. And the gambit I took with my colleagues was to see if we could port over some of those ideas and some of those tools to understand these jazzers improvising without a leader, without a plan to make sense of how they went from one stable sound to another. And the key concept it seemed to me you were looking at in your paper was you're looking at this concept of critical slowing down. We talked about this in the last episode where we spoke, and this is the concept that before you get this tipping, before you get this state change, you get a system that's becoming less resilient. When you nudge it and poke it, it stops bouncing back to its existing system or its existing behavior as quickly as it, as it used to. That's essentially what you took and put in the jazz, isn't that right? That's exactly right. And the first struggle we had was to take audio recordings and think, okay, how do I take this audio recording and transform it into something that I could actually study? It's great to listen to. This is one of my most fun projects, right? <laughs> you know, I, I can, you know, just put on headphones and listen to like fantastic free jazz musicians and convince myself that I'm doing work. But it's tough to go from that to being able to quantify critical slowing down, this resilience, this ability to bounce back. So what we did is we used some mathematical techniques from machine learning, from computer science that people have used to study sound, that they've used to do things like classify people's voices to recognize, oh, whose voice is that? And the trick there is you take a sound, so for instance, maybe a moment of this jazz performance, and you transform it into a point in space. So now that point corresponds to a particular sound. Maybe it's like a really loud saxophone sound. And then you can say that another point is another sound, and another point is another sound. And what that allows you to do now is to take each song, each track, each piece, and transform it into a trajectory through this kind of abstract space of sounds. 
So now instead of just, you know, the cacophony of the recording, I have this really nice mathematical object of basically a shape that's being traced out by these musicians as they're playing. They start off in one corner. They dabble around there. They're tracing out a path there. Then they gradually go to another corner of the space. Maybe they jump suddenly to another corner. And all of a sudden, I have this really nice geometric object that I can study. And using that geometric object, that trajectory through the sound space, I can start asking, how stable does it seem to be at a particular moment in time? You're essentially able to carve up, aren't you, mathematically, the areas of, shall we say, stability. What's the term you use? You use a, a term for each one of those type of... I think we call it sound world. Sound worlds, yeah. And then you're looking at how you tip from one sound world into the other. And you're looking specifically at what happens in the run-up to the tip. And can you predict it using this concept of critical slowing down? Yeah, totally. And so this is a thing that uh, ecologists have done. So they, it's with ecologists, it's a bit easier, right? Because you can just sort of look at the lake and you're like, oh, it used to be clear. Now it's completely opaque and all the fish have died off. So it's really clear or it's somewhat easier. I don't want to say it's really clear. I know it's actually very difficult for ecologists to make these distinctions um, in their own field. But it seems a little bit easier to know when you flipped over into a new regime than in jazz, for instance, where it might not be so clear-cut. And so we tried to do that in two ways. So one, I happened to be collaborating with a fantastic jazz musician in his own right, Matt Setzler. And so he just listened. And he was like, oh yeah, this, this is a clear, they're, they're doing something different before. And now like, oh, where did that come from? My gosh, like the drums are in, you know, all of a sudden it's loud or quiet. And so he just went through and sort of carved up each piece into a series of sound worlds right? These more or less stable regimes where it's a similar sound, a similar tempo. And then I think human judgment is great. I think it's fantastic we did that. But of course, you know, there's always this question about objectivity. And of course, he's one of the scientists. So who knows what funny business he was getting up behind the scenes. And so we also used objective techniques where we went through and detected cases where all of a sudden the sound was really novel relative to what was happening before. And so we're able in this completely computerized, bottom-up, unsupervised fashion to pull out these moments where the sound suddenly changed from one type of sound to another. And then once we had those, we could treat each of those as a different state of jazz in the same way that the lake ecosystem can go from really clear to opaque, or an economy can go from a bull market to sudden economic collapse, we can then treat those different sound worlds in the jazz performances as those stable regimes that they're bouncing between. And then we want to ask ourselves, could we predict that these are coming before they even show up? Can we actually look in the same way that ecologists have looked at ecosystem and been able to be like, okay, we think there's a loss of resilience there might be a really sudden transition on the horizon. Could we do the same thing for jazz, even though potentially the jazz musicians themselves don't even know it's coming? Because these are unplanned. So there's a real potential that at the level of the entire system, made up by the players, their instruments, 
their relationships to each other, maybe even the audience playing some role there at the level of that entire system, can we predict that it's losing resilience, it's becoming unstable and might tip over into a new sound before it happens? So here's the punchline. We could. And it was sort of really shocking. You know, it was one of those dream projects. You go in and you're like, um, you know, it's win-win. It's probably not going to work, but it's going to be really, really fun to do. Or <laughs> this might actually work out. And in this case, it just happened to work out that we could predict using these tools from ecology when these jazzers were about to reconfigure their playing. Can we break this up? I think there's the two questions here is scientifically, how could you predict it? Then what did it look like in practice, you know, from a musician's perspective? So if we tackle the science bit first, what did you see in the lead up to the tipping points? So as we talked about in the last episode, we're talking about states and tipping points. One image to have in mind for a state is a ball in a cup. And a really resilient state is one where that cup is really, really deep so that if you knock the ball, which represents the state of the system, it really, really quickly rolls back to the bottom. But if you go from a deep cup to a flat plate, if you knock that ball, it might roll back if you don't sort of knock it completely off the plate, but it's going to roll back slowly. So one consequence of that is that when a system is lower in resilience, the ball is just going to wiggle around more than in that really, really steep bowl. So imagine, you know, a bowl on the bottom, maybe you have a little fan, you're blowing on it. It's not really moving far because the bowl's keeping it right in the bottom versus a plate. You ever put a marble on a plate and you just knock it a bit, all of a sudden it's wandering all over. So that's variability in the system. And so in a resilient system, you actually have lower variability than in a less resilient system. So our idea is that in the lead up to these critical transitions, what you what you have is a system that used to be really resilient. These jazz musicians were really locked into a particular sound. And gradually that basin, that bowl, had just become less deep. So now there's going to be more variation, more variability in what they're playing. And so we could scientifically look at that as, are they just wandering around more in that trajectory, in that sound space that we had converted all of the music tracks into? And the answer is, yeah, that's what we saw. So as they're leading up these critical transitions, you get more and more wandering. You get more and more variability in where they are in sound space in the lead up to that tip. And when you get to the practical side of that, of to what they were doing, there's a line in your paper that I, I love and I want to read and, and then expand on it. So you say that within a given stable regime, one performer within the ensemble may hint at a new musical area to explore. This hint might be reinforced by another musician playing a supporting motif, which might be further reinforced by a third musician catching on to the developing theme. In other words, that's positive feedback, isn't it? It's reinforcing feedback that is pushing you across the hill into the next valley on the table. Exactly, right. And, you know, that's the kind of system where you often get these patterns of stability and then really, really rapid change when you have a bunch of parts that are sort of all listening to each other, all responding to each other. In physics, there's a classic model of magnetization, of magnetism, where you get these sudden switches from being magnetized in one way to another. And the model consists of a bunch of completely identical little nodes that are just sort of trying to be as close to their neighbors as possible. And what you get as a result is a sudden switch 
from them all being up or positive to down or negative. You have a really similar thing here in a world far from the world of statistical physics, magnetism, right? The world of jazz players, but it's a similar idea that you have a bunch of individual nodes, a bunch of individual components that are listening to each other, that are trying to be the same. And so when you get one that starts to change, if the others start following along, then you have even more influence on the remaining players that haven't switched over. The next one joins in, you get even more, and you get this avalanche runaway to whatever that new motif was that had been introduced by just the one original player. I want to end with, let's throw to a future episode. What's creativity got to do with all of this? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the mystery that's left for me, having juxtaposed ecosystems with jazz musician. Because uh, in an ecosystem, say that switches from one state to another, or in an economy that switches from one to another, in the ecosystem, you don't have individual fish swimming around thinking like, I'm kind of bored with this regime. Like, it'd be really fun to, like, let's try out that, you know, that one where all the fish die off and it's just algae and it's kind of, yeah, let's go for that. In jazz, you do get that, right? Your players get bored with what's happening. They want to try something new. And so on an individual level, they're creatively trying to introduce new components, new motifs, new little rhythmic variations. So you have creativity at that level of the individual. But then, of course, there's something special that happens at the level of the entire system where you put them all together and there's some sort of collective hive mind creativity that's happening at the level of the entire ensemble, the entire quartet. And so this, for me, raises the question of where do we locate creativity within that kind of complex system where you have both individual creative people and this sort of aligns with the, our romantic myth of the creative, right, of the strong individual mind that sort of goes against society to present a new way of thinking about the world. But then you also have creativity in the collective. So you have this collective creativity of the entire ensemble. So for me, I think this really points to the power of complex systems to almost destabilize our received visions of what creativity even is. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about in a future episode. Tyler? Thank you very much. A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.